Today's scripture reading comes from Galatians 5. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us together today that we may be open to receive your word and live by the Spirit. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not be conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. The word of the Lord. Before I get started, I just wanted to highlight one announcement that you'll find in the bulletin. If you haven't seen it already, uh, our campus pastor search team uh, is, has made a recommendation to the council that we bring a candidate uh, in two weeks uh, to visit our congregation for us to get to know better uh, and uh, to spend time with. And uh, his name is Evan Tinklenberg, and he'll be coming uh, with his family uh, from July 28th to 30th. Uh, he'll be preaching for us in our, our morning worship service and um, we're looking forward to getting to know him. Uh, so there'll be other communication coming and opportunities to, to meet uh, him, uh, but I just wanna invite you for now to be keeping this process in your prayers. Uh, we're really grateful to uh, the search team, uh, which was Shannon Stahl, uh, Shannon Anderson, uh, Dean Chen, and Matthew Rockledge, and myself, and um, uh, that the Lord has brought us to this point and, uh, please keep it in your prayers as we, as we move forward. So, we are continuing today in our series in Galatians. Uh, thank you to Nate Hale for bringing us a message from Galatians from the first part of this chapter uh, a couple weeks ago. And we have uh, just a couple more sermons to complete our, our study of this letter. Um, and today... Uh, we come to a text that you may recall we looked at very closely in our series last fall on the fruit of the Spirit. And I don't want to repeat what we covered in that series, but instead today I, I want to put the fruit of the Spirit in the larger context of Paul's letter here in Galatians and, and the whole Christian life. And what we find here 
is that community, the life of Christian community, is essential to the fruit of the Spirit, as Paul describes it. Uh, these virtues that we call the fruit of the Spirit are not about cultivating certain character traits all on your own. Instead, as N.T. Wright has said, Christian virtue is a team sport. You can only bear the fruit of the Spirit in community with others. And so this is what we're going to focus on today. And there are three things that we learn from this text about what it means to live in Christian community in the church. First, we learn something about the power of Christian community. Second, we learn about the struggle for Christian community. And third, we discover the doorway into Christian community. So the, the power of Christian community, the struggle for Christian community, and the doorway into Christian community. Let's look at each one of these. So starting with the, the power of Christian community. Throughout Galatians, uh, we've seen that the identity of a Christian is received, not achieved. Christians believe that the Son of God gave himself for their sins on the cross in a great action of forgiveness and grace. And if this is what you believe, then by faith, you know that you are accepted and loved, not because of anything that you have done, but because of what God has done for you. The, the freedom that Paul declares Christians have been called into is the freedom of knowing that you don't have to prove anything to anyone. You have a status and a worth based on your identity as God's beloved child. You know that you are loved unconditionally, more you belong to him. This is the path to true freedom. But this kind of freedom is not just freedom from guilt and shame. It's also a freedom for loving service to others. And this is what Paul says in verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Notice the, the paradoxical way in which Paul describes the community of the church here. He says to these Christians that they have been called to freedom, but then he challenges them to submit themselves to a kind of slavery. When he says, serve one another, in verse 13, we could just as easily translate that phrase as be slaves to one another. It's a, it's a freedom that expresses itself in, in a kind of slavery. Let me be totally clear. I don't want there to be any misunderstanding. This is not about Paul in any way, you know, endorsing slavery. What he's doing is taking the experience of the lowest of the low in ancient Roman society, the experience of indentured servants, and he's saying, just as a slave in the ancient world had to submit him or herself to a master, Christians are also to submit in their freedom. They're to submit to the will of love, fulfilling the whole law in acts of neighbor love. 
It's actually a perspective that would eventually end up undermining the entire system of social slavery. That's the goal of the Christian life, to grow as people of sacrificial love, living out of the love of God himself. Martin Luther captured uh, this combination of freedom and service really well uh, in his classic tract on the freedom of a Christian. Uh, he, wrote, he writes there, a Christian lives not in himself, but in Christ and his neighbor. He lives in Christ through faith, in his neighbor through love. By faith, he is caught up beyond himself into God. By love, he descends beneath himself into his neighbor. Yet he always remains in God and in his love. When this vision for a life of faith and love is lived out in its fullness, it has enormous power. This is what we find throughout history. When Christians have truly lived out the gospel, it's been world-changing. Let me just give one example. The sociologist of religion, Rodney Stark, has argued that it's only this kind of character among the first Christians that can possibly explain the dramatic growth of the early church. In the first centuries, uh, the church had so much that was going against it. It was illegal to be a Christian. Christianity was persecuted. Christians were generally poor and marginalized. And yet, Christianity swept the Roman Empire. And one important factor on which Stark focuses is the Christian response to the epidemics that swept the Roman Empire in the second and third and fourth centuries. During these plagues, massive numbers of people died, far more than we experienced with COVID-19. For example, in just one of these epidemics that lasted about 15 years, from 165 to 180, uh, historians estimate that a quarter to a third of the Roman Empire's population died. During this time, many people abandoned the sick in the cities as they ran from this plague, and they sought safety in the countryside. But the Christian response was notably different. The Christians often stayed where they were, and they cared for the ill. They were known for it. Basically, they were starting the world's first hospitals. They didn't abandon their own brothers and sisters in the faith. And they also risked their lives to care for their non-Christian neighbors. They simply saw themselves as putting into practice the teaching of the Bible. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And this had a huge impact on the society, and many people converted to the faith as a result. How do we know? Well, because the pagans complained about it. Julian the Apostate, the last pagan emperor of Rome in the fourth century, wrote the following uh, in a letter to one of his priests. He said, these impious Galileans, that's what he called the Christians, the, 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 these impious Galileans not only feed their own, but ours also welcoming them with their agape love. They attract them as children are attracted with cakes. While our pagan priests neglect the poor, the hated Galileans devote themselves to works of charity and by a display of false compassion have established and given effect to their pernicious errors. Such practice is common among them and causes contempt for our gods. In other words, he's saying to the pagan priests, these Christians are making fusion about them. Bad. And you can sense the emperor's confusion about them. 
you know, what they believe is so weird and against the mainstream culture of the empire. You know, it's full of pernicious errors, but they're also doing so much good. What are we going to do with these Christians? This is why when the New Testament's vision for the Christian life is lived out in its fullness, it's so powerful. The theologian Leslie Newbegin says, Jesus did not write a book, but formed a community. And when that community reflects the character and love of Jesus, it's beautiful. And this is what Jesus meant when he said, you will be my witnesses. It doesn't mean that each one of us alone is a witness, though that's true enough, but that together we serve as witnesses to his loving service, his sacrificial love, and the power of his spirit. I often hold up these examples from the early church because we need to remember uh, what the church is meant to be as a countercultural community. Uh, it's good to remember that, to be challenged by it to be encouraged by it. At the same time, we're all aware that too often uh, Christians do not live in this way. This was already true in the first century. This is not a new thing, friends. It shouldn't be a surprise to us. Paul, in our text today, in verse 15, warned the Galatians, but if you bite and devour one another, Watch out that you are not consumed by one another. It's quite a warning. This brings us to our second point today, the struggle for Christian community. We've said that the, the power of Christian community comes from lives of sacrificial, suffering love for other people. It's about our relationships. Now, this is why you will notice that nearly all the character traits that Paul describes in our text today, both the negative ones and the positive ones, are about relationships with other people. In describing the works of the flesh in verses 19 to 21, yes, some attention goes to sexual behavior and substance abuse, but the majority of these are related to the ways in which we mistreat other people. Enmity, which is a kind of hostility and hatred, a strife, Jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries. In the way, the fruit of the Spirit is almost entirely relational. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. There's a struggle, he says, between the flesh and the Spirit. And he's blunt and he's open about these works of the flesh. Paul says that they're evident, or, or other translations say they're obvious. This means that we can be radically honest about the ways in which we fall short. Uh, the ways in which we fall short of being the people that we're called to be, the ways in which we fall short at being the community that, call, that we're called to be. We don't have to search very hard for examples of the evidence of the flesh among Christians. Now, this is why... We use a corporate confession of sin in our week, uh, in our liturgy every week. It's a way of uh, kind of ripping off the Band-Aid every week and saying, yes, we're a mess, and we're, we're a part of a broken church. At the same time, 
The promise of the gospel enables us to be radically hopeful about the possibilities for change and for growth. And it does this by giving us a, a new way of thinking about how we change. Being aware of our, of our struggle with the flesh, it can be tempting to fall into a strategy of just managing our sin and trying to keep it under control. I call this the whack-a-mole approach to sin. Uh, do you remember the whack-a-mole game? I, this was a big part of my childhood, going to Chuck E. Cheese and playing whack-a-mole. It's that box with the moles that would pop up, and you have the big hammer, you know, and you, you hit the moles, and they, they go down. The more moles you whack, the more points you get. Well, this is how I think we often approach uh, our character flaws. We take a whack-a-mole approach. You know, when we see something wrong, we whack it down, and we think of the Christian life as a competition to, to see who can whack down the most moles. The person who gets uh, the most points whacking down sins wins. This is exhausting. And I think it's one reason why Christians can fall into despair. Uh, what can be even worse is when you get tired of whacking down your own sins and, and you begin to treat other people and their flaws as moles uh, to be whacked down. Notice that in Galatians, Paul gives us a very different approach to how we live with the tension between the flesh and the spirit. You know, if you, if you played the whack-a-mole game, did you ever wonder where the moles came from? You know, they're in that box, and if you think about opening up the doors of that box and looking inside to see the source, what if instead of whacking this head, we looked inside the box, discovered their source? This is what Paul is getting at here when he talks about our desires. He's inviting us to open up the box, to open up our hearts and discover the source of our sin in the, de in the desires of the flesh. He asks us to go beyond trying to control sin and reflect on its source in our desire. He's not just asking, you know, what are you doing? Are you doing the right things? He's asking, what do you want, really? What's your desire? And then he invites us to do something deliberate, to reorient all our desires and the habits that flow from them, to walk by the Spirit, verse 16, to allow ourselves to be led by the Spirit, verse 18, to live by the Spirit, and to keep in step with the Spirit, in verse 25. This is not simply about doing good things instead of doing bad things. It's about living according to new desires, the desires of the Spirit of Jesus in us the desire to love and serve others rather than ourselves. When we, we orient our lives to the life of God's Spirit in this way, uh, we're motivated not by guilt or by pride, but by grace. Paul doesn't say, remember, God has done a lot for you, and so now you better do a lot for him. Instead, he says again and again, you've received a gift that you cannot earn. Now live into the reality of this gift that you receive by faith. Verse 24 says, those who belong to Christ Jesus 
have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. In other words, the decisive victory has already been won by Christ on the cross, and the life that we live now is lived in the light of that victory as we identify with him. By faith, you have already died and risen to new life. Now be who you already are in Christ. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Next week, uh, Jeff Harden is going to show you in chapter 6 the picture that Paul gives of what it looks like to keep in step with the Spirit. But in our final verse today, uh, verse 26 of chapter 5, Paul gives the essential first step. And I'd like to end today focusing on uh, this step, this from conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Dealing with your conceit is the essential first step into Christian community. Let me explain. Uh, The Greek word for conceit here is kenodoxos. Literally, that means empty glory or or vain glory. That's what the word conceit is in Greek, a vain glory. And Paul is saying, let us not be people of vain glory. Uh, Tim Keller translates it as honor hunger. And that gets at the idea here nicely, honor hunger. To be a a, a person of vain glory or honor hunger means that you wrestle with a deep insecurity and, and anxiety and emptiness. And we usually think about someone who's conceited as someone who has a big ego and is full of themselves. But often, don't we know, those who are most brash and big headed are people who struggle the most with feelings of emptiness. Their pride is an attempt to fill up their sense of lacking something to make them important and and worthy. The 17th century philosopher Blaise Pascal called this the the God-shaped hole in the heart of every human being. He says that we were made for an intimate relationship with our creator, and, and when we're cut off from him, we seek to fill our need, our need for glory, with the glory and honor that we try and get from other people. The commentator John Stott argues that provoking one another and and envying one another are two different ways that we become conceited. Provoking one another is language from the sports arena. To provoke someone is to challenge them to a contest in order to demonstrate our superiority. Our aim is to win, and so other people are viewed as our adversaries or our competitors in the arena of life. Provoking others is an active form of being conceited. It looks like always angling for your own advantage in relationships or or building your life around that next rung on the ladder of advancement in your work. This kind of conceit uh, often results in very superficial or short-lived friendships or, or romances because as soon as the relationship doesn't benefit you, you move on. When you don't get what you want or feel that you deserve, the result is often anger, frustration, irritation. That's conceited provoking. Now let's look at envy. Envy is a more passive form of conceit. To envy means to be jealous of other people's gifts and their successes. 
especially uh, because we're conscious of our own inferiority in comparison to them. We don't have what someone else has, and we're hyper-aware of it. And so we're sensitive to slights, and we're often grumbling and bitter, if not on the outside, then, then on the inside. So when we're provoking others, we look for ways to be successful in our conceitedness. Envying is a more unsuccessful form of conceit. It's, it's rooted in our consciousness of failure, that we haven't attained what someone else has. As a result, those who struggle in this way will often withdraw from community because it's too hard on your fragile ego to, to, ego to, to be close to others. Or you gossip, uh, tearing people down behind their backs to, to soothe your own ego. Or oftentimes uh, they struggle with depression and, and self-condemnation because you want what others have and, and you can't get it. So notice that envying looks very different from provoking, but as John Stott says, they're really two sides of the same coin. It's the coin of vain glory. Both reflect a heart that is empty and turned in on itself. Dealing with your conceit, whatever it looks like for you, is the doorway into Christian community because it's, the, it's, it's only when you've dealt with it that authentic relationships are, are really possible. The good news is that the gospel has the power to deal with our conceited ego. And when Christ has done his work in us, we discover that we are together with many other people who have been humbled in the same way. As G.K. Chesterton once said, how much larger your life would be if yourself could become smaller in it. You would break out of this tiny and tawdry theater in which your own little plot is always played and you would find yourself under a freer sky in a street full of splendid strangers. How does this happen? Well, first, the gospel makes us conscious of our vainglory. And just as we can be honest and realistic uh, about the failings of Christian communities, we can be honest about our own being others. Becoming conscious of your conceit, whether it looks like provoking others or envying others, is, is kind of like seeing the back of your head. It's always there, but you have to go out of your way in order to see it. The gospel works on us, kind of like the mirror of Erised in Harry Potter. That's the mirror that was locked away in a tower of Hogwarts that shows the deepest and most desperate desire of one's heart. And Dumbledore tells Harry that men have wasted away before it, not knowing what they have seen is real or even possible. So the gospel is, is like that mirror that that shows us our vainglorious desires, but it doesn't leave us there. The gospel also deals with our vainglory by putting something even more glorious before us, the person and work of Jesus. We are humbled as we see his beauty, his holiness, and his love, but we are also filled up when we believe that the creator of the universe loves us so much that he was willing to give his greatest treasure to bring us into his fellowship and into his kingdom. As you meditate on what he has done for you, 
as you begin to see his grace and love for this broken and suffering world, your desires will begin to change. You will want what he wants, and you'll love what he loves. Let me end with this. In the Gospel of John, chapter 15, Jesus says to his disciples, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Friends, this is the invitation of the gospel for us today and and every day. To know and to believe that whatever fruit we bear, it is rooted in the eternal love flowing between the Father and the Son. It's the fruit of that love in our lives that enables us to, to love others as we have been loved through the power of the Holy Spirit. As the Father has loved his Son from all eternity, so he says, my love is for you. Do you believe this? Let's believe it together. Let's pray. Father God, as uh, we remember your goodness and your love, we pray that you would work it more deeply into our hearts. Uh, we confess to you our weakness and uh, the, our, our vainglorious desires, whatever that looks like for each one of us. And we pray uh, that uh, our desire for you would uh, be greater than all other things, uh, that we would see uh, the depth and height and width of your love revealed to us in the person and work of Jesus, and uh, that you would change us from the inside out, that we would love as you love and give as you give and, and serve as you serve. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.